Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. And it came to pass that a team came together. They were a diverse team, different ages, different backgrounds, but they were drawn together by one common purpose. They were a group of Christians, and they were concerned about the future of the church. They had seen churches that had died on the vine, sanctuaries that were empty, youth rooms that didn't have any youth. And they decided, we're going to plant a church. And we're going to do something different, something that will make an impact on the community and the world around us. So they had gathered together, this team of leaders, to decide what will be our principle, our primary focus. It's an important question. It's an important question for them to ask. Because sorting that through would mean this is where we will put our energy, where we will expend our efforts. So the team gathered, and over the course of the evening, four primary voices spoke. The first was the voice of Wesley. Wesley was large, Wesley was imposing, Wesley was strong, and Wesley was right. Wesley was always right. And he let people know that. So when he stood up to speak, his voice carried weight. He said, we need to be a church known for calling sin by its right name. We need to be a church that speaks on behalf of God. We need to be a church that's not afraid to say the things that those other so-called Christian churches are afraid to say. We need to be strong, and at times we may need to be in your face. Everyone was quiet for a moment after Wesley spoke. They knew Wesley, and they knew that he was often right, even though in his own mind he was always right. And they had to consider church as judge. Should that be our main focus? Well, before they make that decision, they might want to consider that if they make that decision, they will fit in well, at least in the minds of some. Back in 2012, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons wrote a book called Unchristian. It was about how new generations are thinking of and perceiving those of us who follow Christ. I'd like to share with you two quotes from the book by Kinnaman and Lyons. The first one is from the back cover. Listen to what it says. Christianity has an image problem. Christians are supposed to represent Christ to the world. But according to the latest report card, something has gone terribly wrong. Using descriptions like hypocritical, insensitive, and judgmental, 
Young Americans share an impression of Christians that's nothing short of unchristian. Groundbreaking research into the perceptions of 16 to 29-year-olds reveals that Christians have taken several giant steps backward in one of their most important assignments. So Kinnaman and Lyons say, maybe our chief focus is to represent Christ to the world. And yet they say, we're failing. Now the second quote, this one from the text of the book itself, they write this. The primary reason outsiders feel hostile toward Christians, and especially conservative Christians, is not because of any specific theological perspective. What they react negatively to is our swagger, how we go about things and the sense of self-importance we project. Outsiders say that Christians possess bark, and bite. Christians may not normally operate in attack mode, but it happens frequently enough that others have learned to watch their step around us. Sobering words, aren't they? Words that any church, any follower of Christ ought to consider in making the determination what should be our primary focus. So maybe the team on that evening ought to consider that. As they think about what Wesley has shared, we should call sin by its right name. We should say what other so-called Christians are afraid to say. There was a silence in the room for a moment. And then somebody whispered, but loud enough so that everybody heard it. But didn't Jesus tell us not to judge others? Wesley's eyes darted around the room, but he couldn't be certain who had said it. The tense silence was finally broken by the second voice that spoke on that evening. This was Martha's voice. Martha was a sweet person, very sweet, too sweet. Martha was always trying to help people. Martha was always trying to fix people. Martha fixed people that didn't want fixed. Martha was sometimes hard to be around. Some says she has a Messiah complex. She's going to sweep in and save you. Save the situation. And Martha was true to form in what she had to say on that evening. She now stood up and she spoke. She said, listen, the world around us, the culture around us, the city around us where we're planning on planting this church is in a total mess. The school board is in trouble. The neighborhoods are decaying and falling apart. Homes are We need to get in there and we need to fix these things. We need to be known as a church that steps in and takes care enough of people to fix the situations they're in. Well, it was hard to argue with Martha. All one had to do was look around the neighborhood and see the evidences of what she had just said. It was true. The problem was... There were those there in the meeting that evening who had been fixed, saved, rescued by Martha. And they hadn't enjoyed the experience. 
and they were sitting there trying to think of how to frame their words. Maybe they could have depended on the words of Ladon Hayes. I want to read you what Ladon Hayes writes on one website. Writes this, When the pressure of, pressure of work deadlines feels especially heavy, or my never-ending to-do list feels nearly impossible to clear, I have a few foolproof solutions. I take long, deep breaths, organize my closets, or call my sister and tell her everything she's done wrong and how exactly I, and only I, can change that for her. Sound like a strange way of finding calm? According to Talkspace therapist Cynthia Ketchings, we try to save or fix people, in this case my sister, because it's easier than trying to deal with our own issues. We believe we don't have to control, have control over our own situations that are making us anxious, so we try to exert control somewhere else. The rush that helping others provides us is exhilarating and can become addictive. Waiting to help others, pardon me, wanting to help others is natural and can come from a place of good. But if it becomes a problematic pattern, it could be a savior complex. The savior complex can be defined as, quote, a psychological construct that makes a person feel the need to save other people. This person has a strong tendency to seek people who desperately need help and assist them, often sacrificing their own needs for these people, close quote. Essentially, it means that you believe you can save someone else from their own problems, and you're often more enamored with fixing that person than loving them for who they are. Members of 12-step groups have a name for this. They call people who do this two-steppers. Two-steppers. They're referring to the first and the twelfth of the twelve steps. You know the first step. In essence, it is we, we realize that we have a problem that is so profound and so pronounced and so problematic that we have lost control, cannot manage it ourselves. And then, having gone through the 12-step process, you finally come to the 12th step, which says recognizing the impact this process has had on us, we now turn our eyes outward and go to help others who struggle with issues that we have and had. First step and 12th step. The 12-steppers say that two-steppers are those who take the first step and then go directly to the 12th step. Something like this. I have a problem that I can't manage, so let me help you manage yours. Doing the two-step. And Martha had the idea that we ought to have a whole church of two-steppers. The church doing the two-step. We'll find people out there who need fixing. We'll fix them. We'll rescue them. We'll save them. What didn't get said that night, in fact, she never said this, <clears throat> was, and in the process, I never have to look at me. Her words hung in the air. There was uncertainty how to respond. 
till someone said, um, Martha, I'm, I'm having a bit of a hard time remembering the text in the Gospels where Jesus said, go fix people. Do you happen to remember where that was? Where it's found? In a huff, Martha sat down. There was some consternation that evening. What do we do now? Where do we turn next? And it was then that prudence stood up. Everybody knew prudence. They actually had admiration for prudence. She had lived life. She wasn't the youngest person in the room, and yet she was deeply committed to this church plant. She put all her energy and all her focus into it because she believed we have to do something for the church. The church is struggling, the Christian church. We have to give, it, give an expression. We have to have an example of how it can be done. And even though most people at her age and stage weren't quite so energetic, prudence was. I'm in this. I'm in it to win it. And now she stood up. Everybody knew prudence. She was concerned that people behave prudently. She didn't think people had a conscience, or at least not much of one anymore, that people needed somebody to nudge their conscience, to make sure they understood that what they were doing was either good or it wasn't prudent. Those in the room had at times been the object of her concern, such as that young man over there in the corner. She had approached him before. He had earbuds in, although she didn't call them earbuds. What are you doing with those headphones on? You listen to that loud music? You got to turn that down. It's going to ruin your hearing. He finally looked up and took an earbud out and said, uh, were you talking to me? Prudence was often right, but she wasn't very nice. People didn't enjoy being around her. I mean, before they make the decision, that team, that this is the direction they ought to go, they maybe should remember the prayer of the young girl who kneeled at her bedside beside her mother that night and who prayed, Dear God, make the bad people good and the good people nice. What should they do about prudence? She was concerned that the culture was becoming like the book of Judges. She quoted it often. You remember that text. She said, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. We've got to be the conscience for them. We've got to speak into that space. We have to correct the course of our culture. Who could disagree with that? Certainly the church does have a place and a time to speak. But the question was, should that be the primary focus? Should that be the first 
step. Prudence felt so and made it abundantly clear that it should be. Someone in the group finally said, uh, Prudence, if we do that, I think people are going to hate us. To which she immediately said, Jesus said people would hate us. We still have to be the voice of conscience. Well, there was a prolonged silence after that. Nobody quite knew what to say, what to do, what should be the primary focus of the church. They had it right there, Wesley over there, church's judge, Martha over there, church's rescuer, savior, in prudence, right down front, conscience. What should they choose? It was right about then that a young man stood up. Young, young to me, about 30 years old, kind of from a backwater town before he appeared on the scene here in the city. His name was Joshua. People liked Joshua. Joshua was, was just a good man. He had the, the ring of authenticity. He didn't speak from a proud place or presumptuously. He was willing to speak into difficult situations and to speak truth, but there was a winsomeness about it, a care compassion. People like listening to Joshua. And now it was Joshua that stood up to speak. I say he spoke. He didn't really speak at first. At first, he just picked up his Bible, opened it up, and from that Bible, he read two passages. That's the first thing he did. He read two passages. One was a passage in the Gospel of John, words spoken by Jesus to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And the other passage was from Paul's letter to the Romans. Here's what Joshua read, John 13 Verse 34, Jesus speaking. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is talking to his team, if you will, his group, his fellowship, his mentees. And he's saying, there is something that rises is in importance to the level of top spot. In fact, it's so important 
that it has been top spot in my life so that if you manifest it to each other, people will know you belong to me. And that's this virtue called love. Now understand, when we read that word in that text, love, we're tempted to think of cotton candy clouds all fluffy and white. We're tempted to think of moonlight serenades on star-studded nights. We're tempted to think of romantic music and a couple in love. If that's what we're thinking, think again. Because what Jesus means by that is something that is robust and vital, that steps into difficult times, that deals truthfully with others, and yet with grace and humility, that is willing to act in the best interest of the other, that is willing to take steps that might need to be taken, but willing to do so in ways that try to honor the dignity of all involved. It's self-sacrificing. It's godly. And that's the first text that Joshua read. The second text he read was in Romans, Romans 13, Paul's letter to the Romans. Here are the words, starting with verse 8, that Paul wrote. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. While Jesus spoke to his followers about their community, Paul now opens it up to any neighbor, member of the community or not, any person, any neighbor who needs our help. And he says, I don't want you to be up to your eyeballs in hock. Don't be in debt. But I do want you to recognize this. The need to love is a debt you can never be repay. You will always be making payments on that because that's the fullness of the love with which God has loved you. And so you will just keep loving, just keep loving, just keep loving. Not just people in your community, but any neighbor. That was the second text that Joshua read. And then he did speak. He said, we're gathered here because we believe the church needs to be saved. It's on hard times. So we have committed ourselves to this mission, to this dream of a new church, 
a new kind of church, a church that will make a deep impact in our world. So now we're deciding. What's the primary focus? Churches judge? Churches save, savior and rescuer? Churches conscience? And then Joshua said, I have to tell you, friends, those three jobs have been filled. Those three offices are now occupied. Those three, what we thought were vacancies, are vacant no more. Because, he said, as I read my scripture, I read that God is the judge. Jesus is the Savior. The Holy Spirit is the conscience. We may have a role to play at times in those endeavors, divine endeavors in the world. But as I read it, he said, it seems clear that we have one main job. One primary focus. One unique emphasis. And that is to love. And Joshua sat down. I think about those words this morning, words Joshua read and spoke. And I have to tell you, I am drawn to them as though by a magnetic force. My response is, that's what I want. But I have to be honest with you and tell you that his words also cause me not just to wince, not just to shudder, but to tremble violently in my soul. Because I love so poorly. Give me the job of judging? I'm your man. Give me the job of avoiding my own challenges and trying to rescue someone else? I'll sign up. Give me the job of being someone else's conscience. Point out what they're doing wrong. <laughs> I'm glad to step in. But to love, to love those in the body, to love those outside of the body, to love with the persistence of Jesus, to love those who don't deserve to be loved. Wow, I can't do that. I cannot do that. At least not on my own. I say that recognizing that I want that to be the first emphasis, the primary focus. And yet wanting to hide my head in shame because I so frequently fail. 
And yet, I agree with Joshua. I agree with Joshua so much that if I were ever to preach a sermon series like, say, Seven Ideas That Could Save the Church, you know what I would do? I would make certain that wedged prominently in the list of ideas, there would be one idea that says, when it comes to the church and the church's primary focus, love has everything to do with it.